BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with Gareth Russell. He is a preeminent and award-winning British historian. He's written plays, he's written novels, and he has, of course, written several works of nonfiction, including the 2019 book, The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era. The 2022 book, Do Let's Have Another Drink, about the Queen Mother. Both were named Book of the Year by the Times London. His latest is The Palace, 500 Years of History at Hampton Court. It is a phenomenal and ripping narrative full of some of the most amazing British anecdotes and stories. I I just tore through the book and loved it. And Gareth, it's an honor to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book, Doug. That was amazing. I got your drink order, which is gin and Dubonnet. Uh, and I, I, do you know what? I said when I came in, I'm so impressed you managed to find the ingredients. Because although it's only two, Dubonnet is not what you would call... Um, a wildly popular choice. It's not in every liquor store. You know, I was lucky to get it on my first try. There's a good liquor store nearby me, and they they happened, so I was oh. I was uh, one shot in. Now I had to look up ways to prepare this. Sure. And so I did not know the secret. I guess it's not really a secret to anyone in Great Britain of whose drink this really is. But right. I found so, out. So it was the Queen Mother's beloved tipple, and. It was a taste she passed on to her daughter, the late Queen Elizabeth II. And I was quite lucky that when I worked in Do Let's Have Another Drink, my publishers very kindly sent me uh, a crate of Dubonnet. Because when Elizabeth II passed away in September of 2022, there was a national shortage throughout the United Kingdom (laughs) because so many people went to buy it to sort of give a a last toast or send-off, which I thought was quite nice. But I was very pleased that I all of a sudden had sort of like bootlegger levels of of Dubonnet. Dubonnet in the house as a bit of a flex for a while. But it it it, ha- it packs a punch, but I enjoy it very much. So you would call it the Queen's Tipple? Tipple. Right? Tipple of choice, yeah. All right. So listeners know it's one ounce gin, which for that we've got Hendrix gin today. Two ounces Dubonnet or Dubonnet. You can say Dubonnet or du- um, Dubonnet. So okay. there's a, a, anything with an E-T at the end, it just has 300 different frustrating pronunciations. <laughs> <laughs> and then a half 
lemon wheel. Yes. And then the ice goes over top. Now, what I saw online was two perfectly shaped ice cubes, but I am going to slightly Americanize this and go my own way, which is one oversized cube on top of the lemon to push it down to the bottom. See, I the like idea. a big I, – I, I'll probably prefer that. I love a big ice cube. Yeah, good. Yeah. The big rock is the way to go. <laughs> All right, so splash, in goes the ice. <laughs> and here we are. Thank you so much, Doug. The queen's uh, to the queen. To the queen. All right, thank cheers. you. Oh, I love it. It shouldn't. There shouldn't be this kind of like spiritual leap within me at the sight of it, but I feel very, very contented. Oh, I love it. It's a delicious drink. I had never had one, so yeah. I. Uh... Now, that's so funny. There was a national run on it. <laughs> I know. I was sort of like. It was like when you had. Um, Loads of toilet paper at the start of COVID. Like oh, you yeah. bring people in and show off your wealth. With it's, like real, it's like real. It's like prison currency, sort <laughs> of. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, so you are from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Yes, Saint Peter's College, Oxford, where you studied modern history. What are the what are the date parameters of modern history? So very broadly, from the death of Cleopatra onwards, and the reason being, it is essentially the point at which sources tip from being predominantly archaeological into being predominantly written. Okay. So we were very lucky to have, there were certain modules that were mandatory, so you had to take a certain period of British and world history, but then you had a great amount of choice. So there was a module on Ptolemaic Egypt, Octavian, Northern Irish Troubles, I mean, really kind of mm. vast amounts of history and periods you could study. Okay. So that was very, very That's lucky. fascinating. I mean, modern, in my mind, I was thinking modern history, that's like JFK forward or something, right. but it's yeah. really so, well, Cleopatra. I, yeah, Cleopatra. So the minute Cleopatra <laughs> shuffles off the mortal coil, then it's, it's, it's technically, I mean, it's, that's a rough boundary, but yeah, okay. it's the point at which... You, you can start reading and stop digging. I think that's how it was explained to me. So I've been through Oxford before. I'm, I'm not, I can't say I'm an Oxford student, but it is gorgeous. Mm. These colleges, Oxford is a collection of 30 some colleges, yeah. right? And then, you know, some are from 1200 something or other. Yeah, and, and ironically, that one is called New College. Um, <laughs> so I think the oldest, they, they, they battle out who's the oldest. Balliol's one of the old ones. Balliol's one of the old. It is also claims it's the oldest, but it was, yeah. they were usually um, quasi religious houses dedicated to the Virgin Mary initially. So it's technically the new college in honor of the Virgin Mary. And then there's the famous Bodleian Library, right, where it's yeah. just... I don't know why know. I'm gasping with such nostalgia. I spent a bare minimum amount of time there when I was a student. But when I went back, because you can still use it as an alumni, it's just the most... Maybe it's part of youth, actually. You kind of want to go back and grab the undergraduates and be like, please appreciate this, yes. this extraordinary yes. thing you have access to. But the Bodleian Library is absolutely extraordinary and, and it never fails to awe you with its size and the sort of multiplicity of libraries within it but sort of self-contained yeah. rooms and different areas just to but. walk in there is it really lifts you up it's inspiring and mm -hmm. it makes you want to go do so. the fact that you get to use it is yeah. really just amazing well that's part and you know there's a bit of it that actually fans of the harry potter film will recognize mm -hmm. duke humphrey's libraries where they filmed the hogwarts library and it was founded by a brother of henry v who was king from 1413 to 1422 mm -hmm. and they have chained up all of his old books and you walk through and i can't fully describe it but whatever the acoustics are you're footsteps both make a noise and are somehow deadened at the same time. It's an extraordinary place. And you do think, my goodness, people have been coming in here, brilliant minds, mm -hmm. since the 15th century. Yeah. And it reminds me of scenes like, like you say, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, you know, when they go to the yeah. Citadel, it feels like that kind of a thing. Totally. So you also then got a master's at Queen's University, Belfast, where you studied medieval history. Yes. Yeah, so they sort of, they delineate it slightly more precisely at master's level. So there will be things like 
medieval history versus more modern history. It was technically under the umbrella of modern of my, history. Right, it's a subset. Medieval death, yeah. is a subset. So <laughs> yeah. my JFK thing is way, way, way off. But, now, I know you studied with Charlie Cook of yes. National Review fame. Which place was that? That was Oxford. That Oxford, was Oxford. Okay. So we actually met... Figures he's a smart cookie. Yeah, yeah, he's a very smart cookie. Charles yeah. and I met in an American history class, actually, I think. Yes, mm-hmm. it was. Uh, and... Yes, he's, I mean, he's just a genius. He's brilliant, and he was mm. then, but he's also great fun. So I think, I mean, I don't think I'm telling tales. I am literally telling tales out of school. <laughs> but uh, Charlie and I bonded a lot more over our love of a pub called the King's Arms, which is next to the Bodleian, mm. where we... Um, next to the Bodleian. So you guys would go Bodleian Library into a pint. Do you know what? Sometimes not even the first step, Doug. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was Char- uh, Charlie's just... King's was, Arms. I feel like every, I think I might have gone to like a a white horse or a king's arm. There's like there's yeah, a yeah. white horse and a king's arm in every British um, town. It seems like yeah, there is. There's actually a white horse in the village I grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the king's arms. I've been there since sort of you know the Pope was an altar boy. They say and, it, and wow. the the turf is another lovely little one that we spent a great amount of time and money in. But yeah, Charlie was just one of those people who had. He still has it. A really a mind that's both expansive and intensely focused. Mm-hmm. Like he can pick out little things, but he sees a bigger picture. So what year would this have been? Oh, uh two thousand and seven. Seven. Was he always political? Was he fairly political then? Yeah. Yo, yes, he was. He was focused very, on that. Yeah, he was I yeah. mean it was um I think his thesis was on the Second Amendment. His dissertation mm. was on the Second Amendment. Uh, yeah, he was. He was just genuinely fascinated. I mean, not by by politics, by religion, by culture. He, I think, actually, he might have done history with politics, and I was straight history, but like maybe he was mm-hmm. just history. <laughs> Our subjects did not feature hugely in the conversations. <laughs> uh, sort of incidental <laughs> details. Yeah, he 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 is. He's a wonderful, and also he's a very good friend. I mean, Charlie is is just a fundamentally decent gentleman as well. Yeah, yeah I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of of yours and of his, and it's great to have both of your your voices out there. So before you began your work as a as a historian, you wrote a couple novels, 2011 yep. and 2012. You came out with two novels that were then adapted for the stage as well. So yep. you've done a lot of other writing before you dove into this award-winning historian career. Yeah, those books have such a special place in my heart because they were um, they were young adult, but they were set in a fictional grammar school, sort of a high school, like in, these Belfast teenagers. Yeah, right? exactly. And it was and it was I was used to tell these ridiculous stories because we don't have private schools. I should say in Northern Ireland, they don't. There's one. Um, there's sort of academic selection, and some of the older schools have like the atmosphere of a private school, but they're not. So you get this incredible mix of people. And I used to tell stories about my school and my sister's school uh, in Oxford and a friend an American friend actually said that's a book there's something there and it had never been done before and it was I just had a blast doing it and then mm-hmm. doing the theatre adaptations and seeing it come to life and I made such great friends from it so it it was really great fun and and this was before Derry Girls like this was before the I mean Derry is a very different part of Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. But really the idea that you could do Northern Ireland and do humor just wasn't thought of at the Did time. Did you come out of school just sort of gangbusters with publishing deals or were you were you working in a pub to pay the rent while you yeah. were writing these novels uh, yeah, or what was, was going so on? I, well I got signed at 23, which is now looking back and it was too young. Um mm-hmm. I mean I'm very grateful for where my career has gone, but part of the problem at 23 is either you're far too confident or far too deferential, <laughs> and I was the latter. So I didn't ask questions I probably should have been asking. I think uh-huh. that's something I've you know learned as I've gotten older, and I, I wasn't at, I wasn't with the agent. I'm with 
not who I'm mm-hmm. such a great fit with. But uh, yeah, it was 23. But I was, I was, you know, working as a receptionist in a gym, which mm-hmm. I, it's funny, there was, there was a guy who is a news reporter in Northern Ireland who was a client there. And he's interviewed me a couple of times. And the, maybe two weeks ago, he's like, wait, were you the guy, were you the receptionist? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, I love that. I, I, sometimes actually I do miss sort of public facing jobs. And then I see what receptionists have to put up with. And I'm like, no, mm. you, you've roasted into this That's in your funny. head. You know, that reminds, as a quick tangent, that reminds me, my, my wife is listening to the Barbara Streisand biography on yep. audiobook. And apparently she was getting acting lessons somewhere in New York. And in this little acting studio where everyone was, you know, desperate to do anything thing that almost nobody was ever going to go anywhere there was a janitor but the janitor's name was dustin hoffman <laughs> and the janitor so they're all like oh the janitor guy you know he was basically being the janitor in trade so he would like take yeah. acting lessons but he said he didn't have money to pay for the lessons so he worked as the janitor to pay for his acting lessons and then he got an off-broadway role and everyone shows up like the janitor got a job <laughs> what like <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, so well, you were at the gym and like was, the, was, the gym receptionist has the, a book deal? I what? just saw it click in his eyes. He was like, wait. Yeah. I was sort of politely waiting to see what he remember me. Um, yeah, I did. I sort of, I, and then, you know, also when you start off in publishing, it's not always that it becomes a full-time job. I mean, I really couldn't go full-time with my writing until I was 29, 30. So I would, I kept working and, you know, yeah, doing jobs like that tutored mm-hmm. a bit. Mm-hmm. I was lucky to have, I could tutor history, English and religion, which are three sort of big subjects. You're doing private tutoring. for Yeah, yeah. Which, which is great fun as well. And um, and also quite rewarding because you're sort of, it's people facing. And, yeah. And you really connect with an individual yeah, kid. Yeah. And some, yeah. you know, I, I had some great teachers and some teachers that were a bit trickier. So sometimes if it's a case of a kid who just maybe isn't you know, isn't gelling with the teacher. Maybe you can build the confidence up and, and work with them on that as well. So, yeah. well, yeah, I had a great time, but it makes you more grateful when things work out. Well, speaking of that, so 2014, you break out with your first big nonfiction book, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. And of course, I know yours because I'm obsessed with the, in particular, quarter century leading to World War One. Mm. So you write a book called The Emperors, How Europe's Rulers Were Destroyed by World War One, which yeah. is... I mean, you think about the number of empires that crumbled as a result. Dominoes, yeah. Ottoman, Russian, German, yeah. Austrian, all of it gone. It's, it's not a good time for royalty sometime around 1917. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I loved your book on Rudolf Diesel, because I think I find the Second Reich just totally fascinating. Yeah. But I also, with that book, maybe the, the section I loved writing the most was the Austrian, because it, it doesn't ever really get told. You, you, there's a lot on the Russians, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more on the Germans, but really nothing on the Austrians and seeing the Russian and the and to a lesser extent the German downfall of those monarchies is really dramatic. Mm-hmm. The Austrian downfall is messier and it makes you very conscious, I think anyway, of how much can change when you're not paying attention to your politicians or you're not paying attention to these small steps being taken. So the way the Austrian monarchy actually went out of existence was the last emperor, Karl, was sort of pressured into making a halfway renunciation, not an abdication, saying America will go easier on us in the peace agreement if we're a democratic republic, mm-hmm. which which I think Wilson was, you know, that was the, the messages that were coming to Vienna. But that's what he signed. And then a lot of Austria, for a generation after, a lot of Austrians felt that this republic had been created on a lie. And that leads to years upon years of instability. Mm-hmm. So that to me was, was just a genuinely untold story. So I was learning as I research, which is which is always quite enjoyable, I think. I saw some article just the other day about a Habsburg, you know, who's 
there, there must be hundreds of Habsburgs yeah. running around the world yeah. right now, and they, they go back to these places where their uncle lived that's now a museum and an oh, amazing yeah. palace or something like that. It's just, yeah. uh, but I mean, they were, the Habsburgs were around for like a thousand years or something. But yeah, there's a really sad, and also I always feel I have to leap in to defend their jaw. Um, the, the sort of famous Habsburg chin is the Spanish side right. of the family that bred itself <laughs> out of existence. And I always feel, there's some Habsburgs on, on, on the artist formerly known as Twitter and they always get people sort of subtweeting them about their jaw and they upload photographs and they're quite good looking and normal people um, rather than um, lantern jawed sociopaths. But the yeah, it's, it's such a strange thing. I can't imagine what it feels like to go back to country that you, your family had a role in crafting and then yeah. that's all gone but, but one of the stories from the emperors that always stuck with me that I just thought was so sad and, and heavy was when the emperor left Austria and the train crossed the border he turned and said to, to one of his advisors after 700 years that's it and you thought wow. gosh the pressure the, what that feels like for him well I'll tell you like for these guys now if you're on Tinder or something like I'm a Habsburg or I'm a Rothschild that'll, that'll that's worth something, I guess, right? I mean, yeah, well, that's true, actually. Yeah, if you can, if you can trot, and you know, also the Russians—sorry, not the Russians, the German, the Hohenzollerns—are yeah. still rich as Cretius. I mean, they can they can trot out a few nice tiaras and uh, yes, diamond medallions. Right. That'll bling up any Twitter account. Sorry, Tinder account. That's right. I remember uh, coming across. I think I put this in the book, and you you would know probably more about this than I do. But I think when Kaiser Wilhelm the first abdicated. After the war, he left with like 15 train cars full yeah. of gold and treasure and artwork and everything else. So. Well, yeah, because it was, I mean, I think part of that is the way that German unification happened, that this idea that actually they weren't the German royal family, they were the Prussian royal family first, and this was a private estate. And it was all very, I mean, the German revolution was a very German compromise, which is that we're now a republic and there's no more royalty and you can't mm-hmm. call yourself a grand duke. But by the way, if you want to put it as your first name on your birth certificate, you can. Yeah. So what they do is they just start putting their titles on their birth certificate. And that's how the aristocracy keeps yeah. continuing. My God. So instead of instead of uh, Habsburgs and Rothschilds, we now have Kardashians and, yeah, and well, uh, other things. Actually, which is a good segue mm-hmm. into what I want to ask you next. In a minute, I'll come back to do Let's Have Another Drink, so I want to talk about the Queen Mother a bit. But Omid Scobie, mm. my God, I'm dying to get your – because you, you, you write, you publish, you talk about the royals, the, the monarchy, mm. and uh, Omid Scobie, I am dying to know your, your thought. And we're, we're far enough into our Queen's uh, tibble here <laughs> to get your thoughts yeah, on Omid. Three sips so, so, so listeners know he is a fawning biographer of Harry and Meghan. And he tends to go after William and Kate mm. from time to time. And what are your thoughts on, on this guy? Great question. Um, yes, I think biographer is a perfect way to describe him. He, he wrote Finding Freedom. And th- the reason why I start with that is that the Duchess of Sussex insisted that she had not provided him with the details that he, provi- he included in this very pro Harry and Meghan book. And then in a, in a libel case in Britain, she had to admit that she had, in fact, provided a lengthy briefing document to aides who went to speak to him on her behalf. So the Sussexes are very firmly denying, or, or sorry, have made no rebuttal of this book, Endgame, that he produced this week, that has generated all kinds of controversy, that has turned it into a bestseller, which I think people are now starting to cotton on to. So I think a lot of people, myself included, if I'm honest, are very sceptical of the claim that the Sussexes had nothing to do with it, or at least mm-hmm. one of them had nothing to do with it, because we've been here before. Yeah, uh, You know, the, the, <laughs> there was a libel case about it. And the book 
really did not sit very well with me. I found the chapter on Kate actually quite jaw-dropping. I mean, it was it's a cruel. It's it's not there's such a fundamental difference, Doug, I think, between critical and cruel. That there's mm-hmm. a big big difference and this one on Kate jumps into crossed cr- over to cruel. R- it yeah. really is it's awful. Um and it, it it's, you know, that there's a lot of comments about her appearance and she's both somehow cold and stupid and it's all it's it's just but if you are not a lot of British people, including anti-monarchists, believe this. I mean, the the, the portrait of Kate that emerges in the book is is so obviously not accurate. Mm-hmm. But the big controversy is that, um, as many people will remember, uh, the Duchess in her interview with Oprah Winfrey said that there had been negative discussions about the, her children's her future children's skin tone. And that it had come from two members of the royal family that they wouldn't name. And now in the Dutch translation of this book, they've been named as the King and the Princess of Wales. Um, And that's sort of all over the internet. And it was Piers Morgan who broke the story in the UK. When you say King and Princess, Prince of Wales, you mean King King, King Charles III and Prince William. And sorry, Princess Kate. Oh, sorry, Princess Kate. So uh, and uh, King and Charles III. No one, be- no one believes it. But mm-hmm. the difficulty with this is that, first of all, Prince Harry. If you ever, ever want to see it, why, sorry, why, why did it come out only the? You said the Dutch version. Yes. Yeah, so this, so this is sort of it's sort of trundling on in the UK. Basically, you'll know that the book goes to translators, and the Dutch translation came out around the same time as the English version. And the royals, the two heavily quoted racist royals, are not named in the English version, but they were in the Dutch translation. Mm-hmm. And Scobie is now saying that that must have been a mistake by the translator because he never put the names in it. And the translator, who I have to say credibility is on her side, said there is no way I would put Charles and Catherine's name in that book unless if it was it had, not handed yeah. to me. Yeah. So the problem, the problem with this from the Sussexes' perspective is, how did he get those names unless they told him? Right. So this it all starts to breadcrumb trail back. Well, and plus, like that's that's knowable. I mean, if someone truly investigates, you can see what was emailed over. You can totally. you can even look at the history of edits within a word document. Absolutely, and also, I mean, the fact that they so far have not come out to put distance between themselves and this book. Yeah. Does that indicate that? You know, he does have receipts about what happened. Um, have you met Omid Scobie before? I have never met him, so I should probably have started with that, actually, Doug. I, I don't know him. Uh, I know some of the controversies around the book. The idea that the Duchess hadn't been involved isn't true, that he lied about his age, that we, he shaved five years off, and that then came out in the tabloids. Um, Wait, who, who shaved five Omid years? Omid Scobie oh. said he was 33 and he was 38. And which, I looked it up. I, I thought was, that must have been a while ago, because I looked him up. Yeah. He looks like he's... 12 years old, but it says he's 42 or something yeah, like that when you look but, online. Yeah, it, you know, that'll change. It goes up. <laughs> it, it's, um, so, yeah. It's like it, Kate Moss. It's like, you know, who knows what the age the, is. It, it's all, you know, age is really, he identifies as much younger. Um, <laughs> and uh, so this, so, but what's interesting is that I think from the Sussex's perspective, this is a disaster because they had yeah. kind of been putting out feelers into people, I think, was the stories were coming out from People magazine, that they want, mm-hmm. that they called the king on his birthday, they were videos of their children singing for him they wanted to come back for christmas the, and the, now this yeah i mean, I, mean doesn't, a, I feel like more and more of the world just sees right through them now listen, you, what's the sense in great britain i mean you're there and, yeah do you know I'm, I'm wondering should i have drunk this before I, yeah <laughs> before I, have another sip and then answer so <laughs> well to, so there was a point where if the sussexes had gone on tv and said say 2020 2021 
The Sussexes could have gone on TV and said, one night the ghost of the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret appeared and stubbed their cigarettes out in my eye. And no one would have asked a difficult follow-up question. They would have been mm-hmm. like, oh my God, that's so true. Of course that happened. You poor victims. I can't believe they did why that to did, you. Why did that ghost stub at cigarettes? Of course a yeah. ghost stubbed at cigarettes. I mean, they just said anything and it was believed. And that's not to say everything they said was untrue, but there really was not a sense of scepticism. Right. The inverse is now true. And whether it was things like... We were followed by paparazzi and it was life-threatening. There is no car in the history of the world that's gone 80 miles per hour in New York City. Right, right. Anyone who's set foot in this place knows. So it's things like that or the case about about the, the briefing for Umid Scobie, I think there are more and more people sceptical. And, and we there was a very strong perception in Britain that America loved them and that they were the most popular figures there. And it's taken quite a lot of people to say, no, the American public opinion ratings for the Sussexes are, are low. Yeah. Uh, in Britain, they certainly do have people who sympathise with them. Actually, strangely, quite a few people in the media sympathise with them. Mm-hmm. Um but broadly speaking, I mean, I think there was a, there was a big royal event last night after the revolution was made, and it's the Royal Variety Performance. It's a big annual charity theatrical thing. It's been going since 1912, and William and Kate were there, and they were actually joined by the Crown Princess of Sweden and her husband. So it was a big sort of it was an official visit as well. And when William and Kate walked in, they got pretty rapturous applause from mm-hmm. the audience. So. Mm-hmm much more than you would expect at an event like that. The general consensus is that this book is is what people hoped the Sussexes had left behind, which is every time their name is in the headlines, it's about another insult or criticism of their of his family. Yeah, I you know, one thing I like about the monarchy is they do tend not to respond. Mm. You know, it's like the the classic British mustn't grumble, mustn't grumble. Yeah, and, well, that you know, was the they, Queen Mother, never explain, ne- never complain. Never, never explain, yeah. never complain. And just rise above and just carry on. And But they never do that. The, yeah. Harry and Meghan never yeah. do that. Well, it's not, it is, and it's, it's something that I think takes discipline. I certainly sometimes have tried to, you know, if, I, if there's a kind of a Twitter scuffle or something or someone, you know, the urge to answer back used to be much stronger in me. But sometimes... Mm-hmm bottling it up and not getting down in the gutter makes sense because I can't remember who said it and I'll butcher the quote but it was something like don't argue with a fool in public because the public can't tell the difference between two, the two of you you know it's something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah you know Doug I think it's it's just you know how many we've heard this song they've sung this song before the Sussexes and how many mm. more times do we need to listen to it, it the song of complaint about his family and how hard done by they were and and I don't doubt for a second that there were things that made them very unhappy but there are also things that we now know just weren't true yeah, yeah. so uh, and it just seems it seems quite undignified really all things yeah. considered all right well enough on those two nitwits which i which i can say now that because i'm drinking the queen's so, I, will, I will say there are two nitwits i feel so warm inside <laughs> and i realize it is the drink <laughs> so one quick question before we get into your process i do a quick section on on your writing process yep. you're writing these big beautiful books and i want to know how you do it but before we get to that uh your 2022 book do let's have another drink yeah. which is about quote the singular wit and double measures of the Queen Mom. Yeah. Can you just give us one anecdote about that sort of goes to her charm or her personality yeah. in some I way? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots. There's actually, I just saw a fabulous play in London with Penelope Wilton as her and Luke Evans as her gay butler. And she, and it, she homosexuality was illegal when he signed on and she, he stayed for years with her. Uh, there's a great story that his boyfriend, this guy's called Billy Talon, 
his boyfriend was Reg Wilcox and they sort of got together in the 60s and stayed together until the, the, their deaths decades later. But the Queen Mother's drink was lit and uh, she didn't realise that the Archbishop of Canterbury had called. And so she heard Billy and Reg quarrelling mm. and that she knew that's why the drink was lit. And she sealed out into the corridor and said, um, I say, when one of I say, when you two old queens have stopped fighting, can you fetch this old queen her drink? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, she was, and I, and I, that's you know, great. Uh, Who tells the story? Does one of the men tell the yeah, story later? And it's, and it's sort of like an urban legend around London because everyone loved the story. So much, it yeah. was Billy Talon that told it actually, and who was there, and and uh, she really was one foot in front of the other. There's extraordinary footage of her at 101 coming down off an airplane and touring, wa- insisting on touring with two walking sticks around an aircraft destroyer. I mean, really, she was that first World War generation of, you don't have any reason to complain. Mm-hmm. And I liked her a lot. You know, you st- it's 101 anecdotes, Do let's have another drink. And you, I started with an Edwardian child and she died in 2002 and her news was broken on the internet. So you're telling a story of a remarkable person in the most remarkable century. So just so I can put this in modern, and by yeah. modern I mean like last few decades, cinematic terms, the Queen Mother was married to the Colin Firth character yes. of the King's Speech. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Helena Bonham Carter plays her in that. Okay. And that's a great movie. And actually really, yeah. actually really lovely story about that, which I which I well, I was always told before I went into this and was interviewing people who knew her that she was kind of closed and didn't do interviews. Mm-hmm. But Forgive me if I get this gentleman's name wrong. I believe it's David Seidler wrote the screenplay for The King's Speech. Mm-hmm. And he came across the story of George VI's speech impediment in, I think, 1980, 1981. And he was determined to tell the story. And he wrote to Clarence House, which was the official residence of, of the Queen Mother, and asked her questions about it so he could get it right. And she wrote back pages upon pages of her memories of the sessions and, you know, how difficult it had been having a husband who, at a time when speech impediments were really mocked was mm. a member of the royal family and but she she ended the letter by saying you know this by the way was immensely painful for me it was a difficult time in my life would you mind very much waiting until i'm dead before there are lots of lovely movie posters about it everywhere <laughs> and seedler you know belonging to another age of chivalry i think wrote back and said absolutely your majesty mm. that's not a problem and then she wrote back and said no please don't worry i'm 82 you won't have too long to wait but she lived you 101 um so that's why the king's speech didn't come out until they didn't start production on oh, it until after she died so he held he held the script they respected back. that yeah, yeah. which i think is wonderful it is a great movie i i love that movie the king's speech and actually my wife and i are now re-watching the pride and prejudice early you know like the sixth episode thing where where uh, colin firth plays mr darcy i think he's, and he's a great actor I also think he's brilliant as the king in that because he mm-hmm. you don't need to look like the person to get the essence off them. I think there's just a lovely quality to him in that right. movie. Right. Yeah. He does look kingly though, the way he walks oh, totally, sort of straight totally. backed and uh so let's dive into the process now then. Hmm. So for example I have the galley and the hardcover of the palace here, which anyone listening, you will love this book. It's just anecdote after anecdote of incredible gems of British history. The bibliography, though, is 20 pages of small print. So I'm curious, you know, you deliver this gift to us all, but you must have, how do, how do you manage and yeah. organize all the research? Well, I do, I do, I have, first of all, have to say a huge thank you to the copy editors and typesetters who are very polite and clearly hate the bibliographies, I submit. <laughs> um, uh, I think so. So obviously, some of those books you're just you're dipping into for relevant pieces of information. So there's a history of Denmark in there. I'm just getting a statistic because one of the princesses was Danish. I usually it depends if it's a straight biography. I will divide it all up into chronological research. Usually start with 
um, doing sort of broad research in the period and then different segments bit by bit. And then obviously you'll change little things as you go along. With this one, it was actually a much more rigid process because I started by doing all the research on the how, on the palace, on Hampton Court itself, mm-hmm. you know, the architecture of it, which is not a huge part of it. But just because you don't include it in the book doesn't mean you can't understand it. You as the author need to know it to leave it out. I had a professor. Then friend. you can deliver everything with more force if you have that behind you. Exactly. Yeah. And I had a brilliant, uh, at Oxford, I think, was it the year I met Charlie, actually, a brilliant professor of French history who said, you will only know that you know a subject when you know what to leave out. Mm. And that's oh, that's interesting. So I love true. that line. Yeah, that's it's great, brilliant, isn't it? And I've always been tried my best to be guided by that. And so I, w- I did all the research on the, on the the building, and then, as you know, the premises. It's a different room, different decade, different person moving forward. So I would do kind of potted biological, re- sorry, biographical research on that, and then social research, and then put it all together. I then, once I finish a draft of a chapter, I try to read a couple of different sources or different secondary sources to see, is there an alternative view to the one I've had? And then you can go back and tweak it if needs be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which makes, by the way, that all sounds incredibly organised. I mean, during the actual process, I look like (laughs) a a frenetic (laughs) mad. I look an absolute madman. Yeah. Surrounded by stacks of books and scribbled paper. Do you you use software to organise your notes or do you use note cards? See, I I have to say I love a legal pad. A legal pad is where I, I jot down everything. And then I used to get big files and then subdivide them into sort of the different eras and slot them in. Mm Because I think chronologically is usually the way to do it. But yes, you have to have a a colour coding can help a lot as well. Because after a while, I mean, you'll know this at copy editing, everything starts to look the same. Oh, my God. These people who do copy edits, it's like a different brand of species. I don't know how they... Totally. Possibly do it. But so listeners know, uh, Gareth and I actually share an editor. My primary editor here in the U.S. is, you know, Gareth has his primary in the U.K., but his U.S. editor is Peter Borland, who... Brilliant Peter. Uh, brilliant Peter. And he would say to me, chronology is your friend. Oh, he's uh, right. As you put he, things he, together. He, that's Oh, God, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah, chronology is your friend. I mean, uh, my U.K. editor <laughs> is slightly um, terser, shall we say. She'll, she'll say, <laughs> you're just getting it saying... Um, I've read this and I don't see what the point of it is. Get rid of it. Um, and um, and I, right. P- Peter sent a few of those my way too. Uh, brilliant. That's what yeah. you want. Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I've been really lucky as well. I mean, like you with Peter, I think. And I think if, I mean, I love my editors. I, my editors are just, they're, they're great people and they make your book better. They really do, I think. Mm-hmm. And you need someone to say, this is good and this is absolute nonsense. Why have you wasted paper on it? Yeah. You know? Uh, next on, on, uh, process here. So for your book, for the palace, you're going through 500 years of history. There's yep. a lot of archival research and, and secondary research. But for the Queen Mother, mm. was there a mix of interviews? There were a lot of living people who knew her. So how did, how did you handle that? That actually was part of the premise of it because I was aware that, you know, this is the 20th anniversary of the Queen Mother's death. And actually her death is, I, rem- I remember it with my family. So I sort of was interested in in trying to bottle the memories of people who are still with us. Mm-hmm. But because the Queen Mother lived such an extraordinarily long life, the first, say, four or five chapters, I had one memory from someone who knew her then, because everyone's dead from 1900 to 1950 who really knew the Queen Mother. Once I hit chapter six through to ten, which is, say, the 60s to the 2000s, yes, it was interviews with people, which is mm-hmm. a complete, there were a lot of, <laughs> of these <laughs> G&Ds. Um, G&Ds, is that what you call it? Well, Jean and Dubonnet? Well, well, I mean, Doug, once you're number seven, you really have to start shortening it. Speech is no longer your friend. So seven of th- these? Th- that was my worst day. Oh, my God. I actually don't, re- I mean, 
like, you know, it doesn't matter. He must was, have, someone must have to pour you into a taxi. Well, do you know, the thing is, these old, the old money, I mean, I think it's the same here, actually. Like, old money wasps can drink like nobody else's business. Those old money aristos, you have never, I thought Irish people and Russians could drink, but they really can. I, you must have just, there's no way you're writing it down at that point. If you have it all recorded, you just have to go oh, back yeah. and like, what the hell happened last night? What a gift in the morning as you listen to the recording, <laughs> yeah. which you don't is even it remember. Or a punishment? <laughs> Doug, can you imagine having to listen to yourself get drunker on tape? So did you record yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> You've got to give that to a, to the Bodleian Library. You've got to give your recordings as part of your... All uh, I prayed was that my phone would be stolen, so I'd have an excuse to say uh, the sources so, were lost. So funny. Yeah, but, it, but that was a really interesting experience. Because, Well, where I was really lucky... I come from a small village outside Belfast in Northern Ireland, but by strange happenstance, my Sunday school teacher when I was younger was the head of the Royal Household in Northern Ireland. He was the chief butler and ran their Northern Irish residence. And he was, he David was a great man. But years later, I said to him, oh, one, this is like 2014, one day I think I might like to write a book on the Queen Mother. And he said, oh, tomorrow's not promised, interview me now. So I did and kept the, kept the, the, conversation he died in 2016 so I had a lot I had this kind of percolating on the back of my mm-hmm. mind but the interviews are a really interesting process because it's it's completely different to source work people go on it's like interviewing anyone people go when they weave and you know there are some things you get told but they then contact you and say by the way I prefer that not to be included and then, yeah. by the way it was never- were you graceful in that way oh, or, I mean oh I, I was like hey you said it it's going you know no I mean I, I mean I'm not a journalist so I, I don't I can I would you establish ground rules up front like this is on the record this is on background yeah, I would, I would I, well I would say you know uh, part of the thing that you do with this is because uh, I think journalists have to be really careful with that I think they're absolutely right to do that this was slightly more conversational mm-hmm. and sometimes you were getting interviews because you've been recommended by someone you'd interviewed so it was more uh, informal and mm. if they asked it to be taken out it would be taken out and all I can say is there's nothing sensational or salacious or scandalous it was sentimental stuff that maybe was really personal to them that they just mm-hmm. didn't want to go in the book and I think people's memories are such an extraordinarily precious thing and you know some of them said when I'm dead tell it mm-hmm. but it's it's I I took it very seriously that the trust that they had placed in me because yeah. sometimes these people don't really talk and I know some of them had agreed to the interview because they were quite upset by the presentation offer in The Crown mm-hmm. in the most recent season that had come out they were they were upset by that so I, I took it seriously that I should just tell what they were com- I should tell what they had been comfortable telling me well that's that's gives you a, that's a longer view of your own career because if you are crossing over people like that no one's going to interview you for the next book you know it's well that's true actually as well i think you know that yes absolutely and you want to be a good author but you also want to be a good person and yeah. you don't want to be trampling over someone's privacy i think privacy yeah and you're not looking thing. for gotcha moments i mean no. there's you're, you're a brilliant writer the story's there you don't oh, need to thank you. unearth something uh people so the uh the next question i have for you is a bit of a zinger do you know if the royal family has been reading your books and have you been invited to dinner at the palace i have not which is frankly outrageous no i (laughs) am so i i heard that one of them had read the palace Mm -hmm. but i can't say who which is slightly frustrating but i heard one of them had read it and enjoyed it but whether that's true or not i don't know someone might just mean very kind but did you hear? You don't have to reveal yeah. here if you don't want to. But did you hear which rumored? What was the rumor of uh, who in particular? Uh, I can't say exactly who it was, but um, 
uh, senior. Senior, senior. All right. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and also one thing I, I think is um, quite exciting, and should just say this is not linked subtly to the last point. So the, the new queen, Camilla, is a mm-hmm. huge reader. Mm-hmm. And she has set up a fabulous event at Hampton Court, weirdly oh. called the Queen's Reading Room. So she's her her best friend is Judy Dench, which I just think if there were two people I wanted to sit down and just watch be friends, it's Queen Camilla and Judy, and Judy Dench. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, but they organise sort of um, readings and poetry recitals at Hampton Court. Well, that would be criminal if they don't have you over to that. I would love to be invited. I mean, yes, actually, considering I, I, I at one point I. Um, I was at the palace, at the Hampton Court, so much for research that one of the guys um, pointed to me in front of a tour guide group and said, there's a rumour he's a ghost. Because oh, I'm just sort of constantly floating around the halls, <laughs> uh, which is great fun. Well, so let's talk uh, about the palace specifically now. Uh, and so listeners know the palace at, at Hampton Court, you know, most Americans think Buckingham Palace, but sure. Hampton Court was the primary residence of the kings and queens for the majority of the 500 years of its existence. Mm-hmm. So this was the palace, really, yes. for, the, through most of British history. This was Buckingham Palace before Buckingham Palace. Right. You know, it was Buckingham Palace, George III buys it in 1761. Buckingham Palace really was sort of, in the way that we would think of Buckingham Palace as symbiotic with the monarchy today, that was Hampton That was Hampton Court. Court. Yeah. yeah. For, for my, Henry VIII, that's where Henry... Yeah. So... The book has been described as, quote, vibrant, exciting, enthralling, a superb panoramic history bursting with scholarship, wit, and riveting detail. I personally tore through this. It's like a, it's like seeing a guest register uh, over a 500-year period with each sort of guest has like a fascinating little anecdote to it. And you, and you tell these tales with such like, I don't know, riveting, you know, novelistic flair that it's just a fascinating read. It's a great way to experience the sort of expanse of history over the... The monarchy. Thank you. It's. I mean, I. You know, funny when you. That's sort of what I hope to do because I. What I loved about doing a, a building as a biography, if that's not a contradiction in terms, is that people just float in and out. And the opening mm-hmm. quote I have is from an Irish aristocrat called Elizabeth Bowen, and she wrote a gorgeous novel in the forties called Bowen's Court that is about. So her family estate was on the southern side after independence. Uh, sorry, in the southern. Ireland after independence and all the money was gone and she was left with this house and she kind of writes what it's like to be caretaking a house out of existence mm-hmm. and she says you know with there's so much history here with every person who entered and every death the air has thickened and that's Hampton Court to me you know there's mm-hmm. so many people who've flown in and out of it that the air yeah. is thick with their stories and that's a little bit of what I wanted to capture we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So my next question I've written here, and you've, you've kind of touched on this actually from a number of different ways. So I, I know the answer is yes to this following question. But normally when you read a lot of nonfiction, it mm-hmm. tends to be either a biography of a person 
or it's about events. It's, you know, it's World War One or something. And here, the book is about a place mm. and people and events cascade over this place over the course of centuries. So were you very thoughtful about that? And, and I know you were in the research because you kind of started with that, but in structuring the book, were you thoughtful about, I'm, I'm actually writing a book about a place as opposed to people and events? Yes. I, I you know, Primarily. I mean, yes. it's the foundation of the book. No, no, that's, I mean, that's, I think there was that discussion. And actually when I, you know, when you do the, the pitch to the publishers and you have the proposal, the, there were about five or six more chapters. I planned for this book. And the reason I took them out was they were too similar. Not that they weren't interesting, but they were a little too similar to other stories I was telling. Mm -hmm. And there were also, there were other parts, you know, people who flitted in where you would love to have told another story, but it didn't happen at Hampton Court or it didn't have an impact in Hampton Court. So I, I really wanted to make sure that you see these people as they were at this particular moment that the chapter opens with them. So, you know, when you first encounter Anne Boleyn in chapter three, everyone knows what happens to her. But at this moment, you're seeing her sort of at the peak of her triumph and she's mm -hmm. a great patron of the arts and everything looks like it's going to go brilliantly for her. Mm -hmm. You see a very vulnerable Elizabeth I because she's so sick and she nearly dies at Hampton Court as a young woman. And that to me is part of the joy of writing about a place because a place traps you in a very particular moment in your life. Mm -hmm. So you're, and I'm always interested, fascinated actually, by how people appear differently to others. You know, you I've written about people who have totally different reputations in different sections of their lives. So to do this where you just catch them at one moment was, I find mm -hmm. it challenging, but uh, but hopefully a good challenge. By the way, the, the way you wrote the Henry VIII Anne Boleyn piece, it really had me because I was like, wait, this isn't exactly what I thought. And then it comes around, you know, you sort of, you do a great twist for the reader there. Well, I, I love the way you handled that. Thank you. And that, um, that actually was the last chapter written mm -hmm. because I had, I've written about Anne before and I thought, God, so much happened to Anne. I just had to kind of, I kept not, I was so unsatisfied with, I think, six or seven drafts that I left it. And then at the very end, came back and did that. And then it sort of It, it was great because I became unsure of myself for a moment. I'm like, wait a minute. And then and then you brought it home. Well, that, you know well I mean? I'm, I'm really flattered and really pleased to hear that because one of the things about someone like Anne is, I, I always say Anne Boleyn is the historical equivalent of a martini, classy, but sharp. And, <laughs> and I think she... She's so overshadowed, and I do, you know, the Hampton Court did feature in her downfall, so that was included, but life is lived forward, history is viewed backwards. So I wanted to give you the Anne in 1533 who Looking thinks, forward. Yeah. yeah, the world is her is her oyster. And sometimes I, I think it can be unfortunate when we only view people through the lens of the end, because you lose so much of the humanity. You let the tragedy mm -hmm. shape, shape everything that's written about them. So I wanted to pick three particular scenes from the book that I that just stuck out to me. This is these are quick little like moments. And then maybe you can comment on one of these or, or pick a different sure. one. But so so listeners know they're just it's it's five hundred years of incredible history. Just to pick a few highlights, Shakespeare put on plays in Hampton Court. King James greenlights the King James Bible from Hampton Court. And there are scenes where you deliver the imagery of servants haggling over prices for fish and bread and firewood in the hallways around yep. Hampton Court to sort of bring into the palace to serve the the royals. Can you can you pick one or two charming moments from the book that you'd want to mention to listeners? I mean I if, I mean if you come over to England let me know I'll show you around Hampton Court and where the haggling happens. Done. Done. I I am the kind of person who will take you up on that yeah, sort no, of thing. I, I'm I, I I think people think I issue it politely. I just want to show you around Hampton Court. That you can go into these tiny wonderful little warrens and the kitchens are still there. 
uh, I have many actor friends, and that's not their fault. But I love to bring them into the Great Hall and say, do you know this is where they did Hamlet for the first time, where they used to practice the original Macbeth there? Mm -hmm. I suppose... Maybe for me, I quite I quite like the intimate stuff. I love. There's a little room in Chapter Eleven, the Page Boys' room, that's all from one of the the main reception areas. It's a lovely. They've they've preserved it brilliantly and they've restored it recently, so you see what it looked like. And it's where these young teenagers who worked as messenger boys slept, had their breakfast, and you just get a real sense of the. It's a bit like the Titanic. You have all these classes flowing in and out of each other in the past. So I love the Page Boys' chamber, and I also love. This fantastically, and when I tell you, Doug, this is an overdone room. It's a Baroque drawing room where they used to play cards in the Georgian period. There is not one mm. inch of that wall that is not covered in paint, gold, or a cherub. None. There is no uncherub <laughs> surface. But it's sort of exuberantly awful, and I mm. love that room. And it sort of it has the sense of a room that you partied in and you enjoyed it. So Hampton yeah. Court has the mundane and the magnificent all jostling side by side. Oh, I love it. I love it. The kitchens are the best room, but I always take people to the kitchens first because they're from of the seventh period, there's still smoke on the roof, and the ser- the sorry, the, the, where the servants used to roast um, meat. The staff today light the fire and turn the spits, and sometimes put meat back there, so you get the smell and the the sense of it. All right. Well, look, before we have even sobered up from this G and D, we're going to pick a date and make this <laughs> yeah, happen. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, you'll love it. So, one before we get into the lightning round, which is how we kind of close out the show here, I, I wanted to talk about one more topic, which you you discuss in the very beginnings of the book. And I found it fascinating because you you hearken back to it's sort of a defense of the monarchy, the existence of this monarchy in this yeah. modern age. Again, modern meaning like JFK forward, sure. in my view. <laughs> uh, and you talk about C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. the, the the great author of Narnia and other things, who defends the monarchy and the existence yes. of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. And he he listed two defenses. One was politically it's important because it, it serves as a bulwark against party politics, you know, sort of the monarchy rises above all that. We need a place to go that's above the party bickering. And the second was culturally, it's important because it allows us to focus on something other than the, you know, something more edifying than the nonsense of celebrity and mm-hmm. cults of personality. And so I found that interesting and I I subscribe to those defenses. I, I believe in that. And again, like the mustn't grumble, mustn't grumble thing, sure. which I think is a great lesson for us all. They're sort of chin up thing that they have. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And secondarily, as sort of a follow-up, what if members of the royal family morph into these sort of Instagram celebrities? And, and of course, thinking of, of two out in Santa Barbara, California, sure. who are doing that, and they sort of grift off the monarchy and, and diminish mm-hmm. its um, its ability to be culturally important because it's more edifying than celebrity. Yeah, celebrity is a really poisonous thing. And this is not me getting at celebrities individually. It's more actually at the public uh, because there is a cruelty in adulation. There's a possessiveness in adulation. Mm-hmm. And how many times have we seen a celebrity raised and raised and raised to then be kicked down? And it's often, I don't know if you saw a few years ago, seven years ago, I think it was the the um, FX series Feud about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and Jessica Lang plays Crawford. And the whole series is about, there's a brilliant line, Betty Davis says to her, what did it feel like to be the most beautiful woman in the world? And Crawford responds, it was wonderful. It was the most sublime thing you could ever imagine and it was never enough. And you watch what happens when you were the peak of physical perfection or adulation and your light and life dims in front of you. Mm -hmm. And monarchy 
has a celebration of age in a way a lot of other things and celebrity in particular doesn't and that sounds like a really minor point but monarchy really celebrates all the major stages of life you know christenings and weddings and funerals and I personally love that I think the idea of uh, what was it Badgett called it um, monarchy or royalty sorry is the grand celebration of a universal fact so all mm-hmm. these moments get it you know we invest in those I loved I, I don't think the monarchy will go down that route. I think had it been doing that, we would have had William and Catherine responding much more um, uh, visibly to some of the insults that have been hurled towards them. I do think it's very easy to... Every generation thinks they're going to reinvent the wheel. There was a great interview with Princess Anne, the king's sister, uh, with Canadian television, I think. and she, Oh, sorry, excuse me, of Vanity Fair. And she said, you know, often young generations think they can reinvent the wheel, but there's a reason the wheel was invented in the first place. You know, sometimes it, you don't have to, to reinvent it. And I'm really dubious of this idea that the highest point of praise is modern. I just find that an absurd notion that why is this still here in the modern age? What do you mean by the modern age? Do you look around at our own era and generation and think, my God, we've gotten everything so right, we must want to do more Mm -hmm. of what we've done. We've made many mistakes. As the past has made many mistakes, and sometimes the rush to destroy or change is very seductive, but actually you have to ask yourself what comes next. That that's that's the big question. Mm-hmm. And and so to me the monarchy as a custodian of, of continuity is really fundamental and important. And I and I take it seriously. But taking the monarchy seriously does not mean that you have to approach the history of royalty and bended knee. You know, there mm-hmm. are many monarchs in that book that are awful, Henry VIII and George the Second, for instance. You I think I mean, I assume patriotic Americans feel the same way about your country. Loving a country and caring for a country and caring for its tradition does not mean that you're unable to criticise it. In fact, Mm -hmm. in many ways, your criticism, if fair, improves it. So this book really was partly a reflection on what happens as ideas change and shift. You know, this palace started as a church property, then it became a crown property, and now it's a tourist attraction. The monarchy has changed with it. The the, the only constant in, in human history is change. But I really loved that C.S. Lewis quote. I'm so glad you liked it. I mean, yeah. I, I C.S. Lewis is another Northern Irishman, so we sort of grew up... Oh, I didn't know he was Irish. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. He was just outside Belfast. So we... Uh, County Down is where I grew up, and, and C.S. Lewis used to say, heaven is Oxford, lifted up and sat down in County Down. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I put him and... Ernest Jones, who was a psychoanalyst, who sort of argues about the, mm-hmm. the, the need for monarchy. And then Muggeridge and a playwright called um, John Osborne, who were very strong anti-monarchists, to show that the reason why I picked those four, Doug, was because their arguments on monarchy are more interesting mm-hmm. than just, I hate the royals or I love the royals. Those four men, Muggeridge and Osborne against it, Jones and Lewis for it, were arguing about the spiritual content of monarchy and, by extension, yeah. all politics that we invested. So that was, I find that, and I find theory interesting. Well, I, I thought both of his his main points here, both the political and the cultural aspects of why the monarchy matters, connected with me. In particular, the, the cultural, of course, is nice. You know, it's it's nice to have something that's sort of, uh, I don't know, elevated in yeah. a way, but not to sound snooty about it, but it's nice to have something that's not Kardashian-like. And then the politics one connected with me, I would say, even more so, because we need places to go that are away from the political fray. Here in America, we don't have the monarchy, obviously. We have government, so it's, that's all politics. But we used to have sports and entertainment or whatever. But now yeah. it's like many of these athletes are highly political. Many of these music artists and actors are highly political. And it's like there's almost no refuge left 
That's what I was going to ask you, and I, I hope I'm not overstepping, but do you think as an American, just with what your country has gone through, with sort of, you know, of politics becoming embedded in every aspect of your life, mm-hmm. maybe that's why it resonates with you in such a way? Because I think for us, I sometimes think we... Ch- it's like everything. You take it for granted if you have it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we we do sometimes take the monarchy for granted and having something that's just there. And that sounds feeble, but actually something that just keeps on going. And the idea that whether you're conservative or liberal or progressive or radical or reactionary should be the sum and be all of your personality, I think is is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think I think it eats you up a bit. It does. And, and you know, again, getting back, you know, you and I are both historians of a, of a kind and shedding some history on the light on, on the subject. It does you know, I'm always wary of people like, it's never been worse than today. It's like, oh, well, yeah. it's yeah, definitely yeah. been a lot worse than today. Trust me. But so I remember reading a biography <laughs> of Andrew. Too, when yeah. says, it's never been worse. I'm like, I would like to refer you to yeah. the whole of the 14th century. To almost century. any other century, right? It's, it was worse in every other century than, than now. But I remember reading uh, this book on, you know, when we talk about sort of party politics getting really nasty. Mm. There was a Meacham book on Andrew Jackson. And I'm like, my God, I read that. I'm like, Mike, they hated each other far more then than they do oh, now. Like yeah. now is like relatively docile uh, compared to that. So, but I do think what is different is the pervasiveness of it in your every, like you can't pull up Twitter or Instagram mm. or go to school or see an actor do an interview without politics being part well, of it. Because I think everyone feels, everyone has a voice, everyone has a platform. Twitter has has given everybody this platform to yeah, pop but, off about anything. And it's a, just very annoying. Yeah, but Doug, a platform without education is just harm. Terrible. Right. It really is. And I and I have, Not everyone needs a platform or should listen, have one. I always... I mean, when I tell you my high school biology was frightening. My father was a science teacher, having a, a sports broadcaster. Two things I have catastrophically failed at. But when he emerged my parents' teacher evenings, he said, I, if I, you can tell me where your elbow is, I will be surprised. Um, <laughs> but that, So I always defer to a doctor. Like, that's his education. You just know your own limits. The idea that we all have to be experts in things is so pernicious and unhelpful. Know yourself and know what you're not good at. Yeah. And I don't... And this, by the way, there are some... Um, uh, actors who have you know done the work and maybe they're left and maybe they're right wing more often left but they've you know they've done work in charities and I'm not in any way saying they shouldn't say things but when you have actors come out with sweeping historical and political statements yeah. that they have that are clearly incorrect I just think if you really respect history and you respect the damage it's done as much as anything else you should educate yourself on it you should look into it that I think yeah. that's that's always a worthwhile endeavor yeah agreed all right. Well, on to the lightning round then. Mm. All right. Flat, are, are, do you need a little more uh, um, G and D over there? I need a little more, but I will take a little more. Okay. <laughs> done. Done. All right. So we're gonna load up, reload a little bit here. Again, do you, do you the, see what uh, I mean? Two to one ratio. It, it feels like a winter drink, doesn't it? It feels like a bit. It does. It's a yeah, great yeah. winter drink. It's a good fireside drink. All right. I'm, not, I'm gonna scale it back, sort of half size. To yeah. What yeah you perfect. Had. Would you like another ice cube, though? Um, if you've got one, yes, please. Yeah, I do. I love an ice cube. What, by the way, what is your favorite? Or do you have a favorite cocktail? So it's sort of like asking. Yeah, mine actually has been selected on this show before. Which, another lemon? Please. Yeah. Um, which was uh, Douglas Murray picked my favorite drink, which is... Damn it, Douglas. <laughs> another Brit. Another Brit. And leave it to those guys. Do you know what uh, a rye one? Manhattan up oh, is listen, my number one. Also, I mean, I've never met Douglas, but I mean... 
I used to think I was, I, when I could say, oh yeah, I was signed at 23, I thought I was doing, it was a young adult novel. Douglas was signed at 18 for a full-length historical That's biography right, yeah. before, before Oxford. So that and you, selecting your favourite cocktail now just makes me very angry. Uh, there's nothing that guy can't do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, first question for the lightning round. Your favourite book as a kid. I'm going to top up mine as well while yeah, you do, do this. Uh, my favourite book as a kid was C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I it's the fourth of the Narnia books. I love a quest. And so the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is King Caspian and the Pevensey children. No, sorry, only two of the Pevensey children return to Narnia and they're on a ship going to retrieve knights who were loyal to Caspian's father and they go to various spots. Mm-hmm. I also love the Three Musketeers for the same reason. A good hearty quest is something I love. And I loved the beauty and the strangeness of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I've mm-hmm. always loved travel. So it was mm-hmm. the perfect book for me. Oh, that's awesome. How old were you when you read that, do you think? I was eight. Well, we, so eight and... Eight? Yeah. Good Lord, you're a good early reader. I was I was a big early reader. I was really lucky. My late grandmother, um, May, had um, was really bright. And unfortunately, at the time she grew up in the 30s, there just wasn't that educational opportunity for girls. Mm-hmm. Her mother didn't send her to the school she qualified for because she said, what's the point for a girl? But she then channeled that into opening her own bookstore in the village where she grew up. And so... When I was like nine or ten, when we went to the house they took for the summer, my job was to read a page of an Hercule Poirot mystery to her. And she would then read another page. So I was familiar with phrases like Princess Dragomirov and, you know, Hungarian names and everything from these books because of my grandmother. So I was encouraged to read and I was very, very grateful for it. Oh, that's great. And that, and, and look at you now. You know, it's just, just starting that whatever you do, being a good reader, a good writer, that's that's... Yeah. The building block for anything else. Isn't it? And I think also reading is just, it it is the best thing for your mind. It yeah. really is. All right. Book or books you're reading. I know you're, you're on the big book tour, the American book tour yes. for the uh, the U.S. launch of The Palace, but book or books you're reading now if so you have time. At, so the minute I'm actually rereading, and my, I have an annual reread of my favorite novel, which is The Leopard. It was published in the 1950s by an Italian aristocrat. It's, it's short, and it's set in 18... 61 in the unific- sorry, excuse me, 1860, the unification of Italy, told from the perspective of the single summer from a single Sicilian aristocratic family. And it is, I can read a page. Is I it mean, non-fiction? Non, it's fiction. fiction. And it's, and it's, um, it, the, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever read. Right. I mean, the language is how he describes the sunset. And says, oh. he, you know, he talks about the heat and says, the sun was back like an absolute monarch who had been defeated by his subjects and returned in constitutional form, still determined to scorch. You know, there, 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 there's, <laughs> there's, um, he, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. So I'm rereading that. And I'm also reading um, a book about the Hardy women that I've been sent in in ARC form for a quote. So that's it's okay. Thomas Hardy's woman. So that's at the current point. But I always bring, which is probably not great. I usually, when I travel, bring a book I've read before. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I reread. It's, it's, I, it's you know, I don't reread enough. I just do. You uh, pick the ones you love. I think really because sometimes the only book I reread is The Sun Also Rises, which I tend to reread oh, every two to three years. Oh yeah, that's good. Uh, do you know the one I love? This is interesting. This travel comes up a lot in mine. I love Murder on the Orient Express, maybe because mm. I read it with my grandmother. But I just think it's the most perfect. Did you like the movie? The most recent one? Uh, with, uh, Kenneth Branagh? No, I didn't. Um, okay. it was, it was, <laughs> this is why you should defend me. This, right. um, the, um, <laughs> We're doing our second cocktail there, here. There, there's, Sorry, there's, Kenneth Branagh. He's, he's phenomenal. No, he's it just, great. He it just great. wasn't for me. Um, the, the book, But I love the... It's a perfect concept for a murder mystery. They're trapped mm-hmm. in the snow and no one can get out. It's yeah. great. I love it. There was just another Agatha Christie 
movie by Kenneth Brown that came out. The, the one oh, in Vienna or in Dennis, Venice, Haunting, yeah. it, which was actually good. I enjoyed, I didn't like the Orient Express one, but I did like the Haunting. So I Venice. haven't seen that one. Okay, that it's it was pretty good. I think it's actually based. It's not a direct adaptation. It's based off another one. So that could be a great oh, idea for it. Well, because Kenneth Branagh, I'm sure we agree, is great. And you can't oh, keep a good so man down. Brilliant. So he did come back with a better Have one. Have you seen Belfast? No, I should. Yeah, it's about his youth. It's very good. Very, okay. very good. Least attended book event of yours ah, ever. My least attended book event ever was in the Hamptons. It was in the US. And it was at the end of my first US book tour. So this is 2017. And I had mentioned to a very well-meaning publicist that I was going to be in East Hampton at the end of it. And she said, I will set up an event to sort of round off them. <laughs> but it was April. So it was out of season oh, for yeah. the Hamptons and also really out of season for my spirits, as it turned out, after this event. So it was a bookstore in Southampton and there were three people there. And I know that, Doug, because they were the three people I was hosting for that weekend. <laughs> so I... so oh, I, no. I, And you have to go back and have dinner I with them. I brought and... my guests to witness my humiliation. Oh. And the, the book, the bookstore owner was so such a gentleman mm. that he was sort of gifting me free copies of his, of his other books to cheer me up. Um, but it, I, the thing is, though, weirdly at the time I thought well this is just par for the course isn't it it was only when we went to a bar in Southampton afterwards that I looked at my friends and saw how much pity they were looking at me with that I thought oh no this is even worse than I thought Uh, yeah I was like oh if if I should look how you're looking at me then this is really concerning so yeah that was my that was my one with no guests at all oh well now you're it's now you're Times London Books of the Year and I know, but I still remember that day in Southampton. Oh, you know, and as you should, you know, yeah, you should hold that with you totally. and appreciate every moment when and every guest that ever comes into as, one of your book events. I, I knew, you know, looking back on it, so my she works at um, Google now. She's brilliant. Um, Courtney Panel Coco, she was there, and I said, if I'd known, I'd have pushed you out and made you pretend to be someone off the street who came in. <laughs> Foolish. All right, next question: a common American misconception of the British. Ooh, um, that they're all incredibly proper. Mm. And particularly that posh people are very kind of rigid. They can be. They, oh, go, to, go to one Arsenal game and that'll that'll dispel the myth. <laughs> it's funny though, because I mean, any American I know who follows football, uh, soccer does not have that opinion yeah, because they've yeah. gone to the games. And I they... took my kids to an Arsenal game and they were like, Dad, what the <laughs> hell is that? It was like every song was laced with profanity. But, beer was flying everywhere. They're not even drunk when they start the profanity ones. I mean, <laughs> they, you know that the drink has kicked in when you can't hear the F-bomb bouncing across the, the lyrics. Yeah, I think, I mean, even there's a great sense of silliness in Britain. There's sort of mm-hmm. a sense of the absurdity. And, you know, the, even when I was researching the Queen Mother book, you know, there was... um there was a nickname for her in high society. They called her Cake. And it's because she was at a wedding and the cake came out. And the Queen Mother was so excited by this cake that she leapt up and clapped her hands and said, ooh, the cake. No, she would have <laughs> ever been more excited to see it. So we, we take a real interest in the trivial and the nonsensical mm-hmm. as well. So yes, we're sillier than people think. All right, next question. Is there any temptation for you to pull a Charlie Cook and take up residence in Florida, USA. Charlie is, uh, I think, down there as we speak. Yeah. Well, listen, I hate taxes, but I quite love the cold. So Florida <laughs> presents both an allure and a warning to me. Uh, yeah, I have definitely considered moving to America before. I think probably at the minute work is a bit is in London. Mm-hmm. But yes, I, 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 there has certainly been that temptation before. And I know Charlie loves it. So 
that would that is a huge point in its favour. Yeah. And I love Florida. I had on the same tour, so on that same tour that ended in Southampton with no one, uh, I did it quite a few events in Miami and Fort Lauderdale that were really well attended. And I just love the people from Florida. They're great. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad the the Hamptons was just some weird anomaly. Because your, yeah, your books are too good. I, I mean, people I, must. This is like, I know, it's but Doug, great the stuff. thing is, like, humbled in the Hamptons is the antithesis of why people go to the Hamptons. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm supposed to be in linen and living it up. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I wanted to be Daisy Buchanan, and I ended up like Myrtle, just roadkill in the middle of the street. <laughs> roadkill. All right, here, back to the research side of things. Mm. Your most exhilarating moment ever experienced inside an archive. Oh, this is a good one, actually, because I lost my mind and no one understood why I was... I always was told <laughs> to shut up by a librarian. Not even could you be quiet, sir. Someone just looked up and said, shut up, and I sat down. <laughs> so I found a... Con- sorry, one of my books, actually, again, the one that no one showed up for in the Hamptons, was a biography of Henry VIII's fifth wife called Catherine Howard, and the book's called Young and Damned and Fair. She was accused of adultery in the early 1540s and there were three confessions that she made. And I found the the missing confession that hadn't been published in about two to three hundred years. I just came across it in an old church journal where they had it. In, basically, the original was burnt mm. and a bishop, um, Gilbert Burnett, had transcribed a lot of them by happy coincidence before this accidental fire in 1731 destroyed the original archives. But we'd assumed he hadn't transcribed it. And there it was, the full transcript of what she had said, just, and then it was about seven or eight pages long. I mean, it, it, she went into detail about her childhood, her life, and this. Was this thing like transcribed by monks over hundreds of years? So, so what, know, who's, who transcribed so basically, what you were actually reading? Why Gilbert Burnett is brilliant is he was this very fastidious 17th century Protestant clergyman who set out to write a colossal history of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. But he went into something called the Cotton Library, where a lot of the original Tudor documents were held. And in 1731, about 50 years after he did the transcribing of them, there was a massive fire at this library, Doug, and it gutted some of them. But some of them survived. So we have some of the sources that he transcribed. And we can see he transcribed them all word for word perfect. So what you're reading is handwritten. Yeah. On yeah. some parchment. This is what she said. I, and, and like, it's amazing you're allowed to even touch these things. Well, I, I, I can't describe what it was like. I have to assume it was like when St. Bernadette saw the Virgin Mary or something. Like I just went into some sort of weird trance. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking at it thinking this can't be what it says it is. I just, I think I got... So then what, what, what was the noise you made that was so loud that someone actually told you to shut up? Well, I... I also... Well, it was just the F word um, <laughs> at the top of my lungs and I stood up because um, uh, I was... And, and that, that's why she told me to shut up, which is completely fair. Um, and it was this sort of fantastic British librarian who knew the hair is hairsprayed in this place and pearls, mm-hmm. but she would have killed me had I made another noise. But I was... <laughs> and I, I went up and apologised and explained and... Um, her face didn't move. It still looked very thrilling. But she was it, she was still unimpressed. Yeah, she went. Gosh, how thrilling! Do bring it. Her face, her her, her mood had changed. Her just tone and face hadn't. Right. Uh, yeah, it was really. And it, it sounds like such a niche thing, but when you see someone you've been at this point, I had done my master's thesis on her household, and I had been working on this biography for two or three years to finally get page upon page of her remembering her childhood and her teenage years, even details of what clothes she wore in particular events, and then Mm. admitting what the nature of her relationship had been with these men was just, I mean, a goldmine beyond words. All right, switching gears slightly for this next question. 
the most pleasant and least pleasant forms of execution. Ooh. And I'll name a couple yeah, options, yeah. and then you may know far more than I do. Drawn and quartered, crucified, hanging, beheaded by axe, beheaded by guillotine, burned at the stake, firing squad. What, what's best, what's worst, you say? Probably the best, actually, is maybe firing squad. Mm. Um, if the theory is correct that there is residual consciousness after the blade strikes, Mm. then that could be utterly horrific. I don't I'm not convinced by those arguments, but um with with firing squad it is all over pretty instantaneously because the brain usually gets hit or the heart, you know, it's quick. Um the the worst, I mean burning by the stake and the 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 crushing of them is is pretty bad. <laughs> um to put it mildly, I would say the worst actually there was hang drawn and quartered. And the reason is that I don't think people fully realize how methodically horrific it is. So it was invented or pieced together by Edward I in the thirteenth century to punish a Welsh nobleman, um, Daffeth, who had rebelled against him. And Basically, the king concocted this charge against him that part of it had been sacrilege because the rebellion started in Holy Week, so it violated the Peace of Easter. Then it was treason, and then it was regicide, and so there were three punishments woven in together. And then it becomes this uniquely English, horrible version of execution. So you are hanged until you are half dead, which means they basically throttle you for a while until you go into full panic. Mm. They will then cut you down, so there's none of this quick drop it's they literally right where your neck could break or something yeah that's just that's being hanged Uh, hanging so it is hanging and you will kick around you'll probably soil yourself or you're in you will go into the the you'll get as close to thinking you're about to die and if only you did then they will cut you down and if so they only do this with men sorry i should say as well so they will pin you onto a board strip you naked and castrate you and then they will um cut open your stomach and pull out your they'll, they'll disembowel you they'll rip out your innards um, and, there's Wait, some, and you're still alive and yeah, maybe and even conscious alive. for you, all that you, you are beheaded at the end after the innards are removed if you've lived through that as opposed to quartered which means they lash your wrists and no, ankles so, so, and no, pull you in different directions oh actually that's not no quartered actually is after they die after they die you cut the corpse into four bits and oh. you send each of the four limbs to four of the areas that this person was associated with. So where they committed the crime, where they were baptised, where the family was from and something else. Like They'll find four areas. What you're thinking of is also, sorry, a uniquely horrible way. So this was the, <laughs> the, the horses. Right. This was a French punishment. And it was usually reserved for regicide. So it is reserved mm-hmm. for... Um, the most famous example is a guy called Raviac who stabbed King Henri IV in 1610. So they turn it into a spectacle. People come to attend this and Raviac is brought into the centre of a place in Paris and one horse is tied to each limb and then the horses are whipped. And you're pulled, you're pulled literally apart. pulled apart into five parts. Of crowd, yeah. What do they call that? I can't is there remember. A name? There probably is a name, but it's horrible. But it, it and do you know, I, you probably know this as well. Like when you're a kid and you're starting out this love of history, there's a certain point where you read things and it just traumatizes you. Like my mother yeah. says, she looks back at some of the things I read as a child. I was like, you should never have been allowed. So to we read that. we may have made an error in judgment here, but we took our kids to Amsterdam for Thanksgiving a couple years ago. And we went to the torture museum, which is full of these crazy devices, like this thing that looks like a pyramid, but you they put the guy to sit on the point of the pyramid and then yank him down and all these crazy contraptions. I want to help you out here, but you have to have had some red flags at the torture museum. <laughs> you know, in the end, it was like our kids' top two or three things we did at the trip. It. Yeah, but, they loved it. But this is also, I wonder if you agree with this, because I've been looking back 
I'm really interested in fairy tales. I find them fascinating. I don't think children like sanitized fairy tales. I think children are much more they accepting of gore thing. and horror yeah, yeah, yeah. than we give them credit for. Yeah, that, well, our youngest always wants to watch the scariest movie, whether it's the uh, the Creep Show or the uh, the Goosebumps stuff with R.L. Stein. They, yeah, they love oh, all that great. stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question for Gareth Russell. Hey, One mate. piece of advice for the listeners. Oh, read. Just read. Read. Um, the other thing I would say is also, I mean, take a journey, which is actually in a weird way reading. The same thing. Yeah, I, I think, I always think taking a journey somewhere slightly unusual, even if it's just a different route home or something. Mm-hmm. limbers up your mind a bit and reading I think do you know sometimes you go on the internet and you look and read a proper book you look at all these things and you get so depressed about humanity and you think gosh everyone's awful and annoying and shrieking and but then you go back to your book and you see hopefully something beautiful and you're rem- you're, you're given great company with a book a book is is the best company you'll have well Gareth that was awesome thank you, thank so, you much. so much thanks for coming thank in. you for the g and it's delicious <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.